get through the chapter this week. But before I go any further, let's pray. Lord, we lift up this time to you and we ask for your spirit, God. We know we can't understand uh, the things of you, the things in your word uh, without your spirit. So we pray that you would give us your spirit to enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would see you uh, and we would see the truth that you want to to bring to us, Lord, as we um, tackle this uh, tragic text. I pray that you would um, you would encourage us through it, and that you would teach us what you want to us to learn about this passage. We love you in your name, Amen. All right. So last week um, we saw David. Obviously, he's on the run from Saul. He doesn't really know where to go. In the chapter before that, 1 Samuel chapter 20, we saw that Jonathan uh, fulfilled his oath, fulfilled his covenant to David, and he helped David escape from his father Saul when he knew that Saul was going to come after David. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, which we spoke about last week, we see David's on the run, uh, and he's He's in a desperate position. He doesn't have the uh, following that he once had. We'll see him pick up some guys at the end. But Saul is out to kill him. He goes to Ahimelech, the, the high priest at the tabernacle, running to the right place, running to the house of God. He's desperate, but he makes a mistake and he deceives the priest. And we got, we're going to see in this passage specifically the consequences of that deception. But we also see by the end of the passage, passage uh, in first Samuel the end of chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 22 uh, we see through the Psalms and even through the story there in first Samuel um, that 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 David finally got it and we saw that his desperation ultimately uh, led him to this place of dependence on God and he writes all these Psalms during these this time period uh, when he went mad when he was captured by the Philistines and Gath but ultimately he learned his lesson and he was fully dependent on God and that's why God was allowing him to go through these difficult circumstances so he could bring him to this place of dependence. He was using all these things to mold David, to shape David, to become the king that he needed to to become. See, Saul was a king that depended on himself. David would be a king that depended on God. Now, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 6 to 23, as I mentioned, a big part of this, a big chunk of this is really the consequences of, of David's deception. And literally, there are going to be hundreds of people that are killed because of David's lie. But David didn't just lie once. He had to cover up his original lie and he lied many times trying to cover up his situation so that Ahimelech wouldn't know that Saul was out to get him. So what we're going to see is King Saul as a picture of the enemy slaughter 85 priests with their families, nursing infants, children, wives, you name it. He has them killed. But what we're also going to see at the end of this text is that God is going to preserve and he's going to preserve literally a remnant of his people. The title of this teaching is when the enemy attacks, God preserves when the enemy attacks, God preserves. We're going to see something cool in this text, as tragic as it is, but we're going to see a theme in this chapter that literally carries out through the rest of the Bible. 
The enemy is always out to destroy God's people. But we see time and time again, from Genesis to Revelation, God will always preserve a remnant of his people. See, Saul, he represents the enemy in this chapter. Saul, he's being attacked by the enemy. We remember this distressing spirit keeps coming upon him. But he's also a representation of the enemy. Specifically, Saul is a type of Antichrist. He's a type of Antichrist. Let me show you in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, we see, yes, there's a big A Antichrist. We've been talking about him. We were just talking about him on Sunday. We'll talk a little bit more about him this coming Sunday. But look at what John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, capital A, is coming, even now many antichrists, little a, have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Saul is a type of little a, he's a antichrist, little a, he's not the big a, antichrist. Why do I say this? Well, we see throughout the scriptures, uh, this connection between who the antichrist will be and some of the things that Saul does. He comes against David just as the Antichrist will come against the son of David. He's out to kill God's people as we'll see in this text. So too will the Antichrist be out to kill God's people. He's power hungry and he's jealous over the rightful leader just as the Antichrist is. He's a liar. He's rebellious. He's the king that the people wanted. Just like the Antichrist will be the king that the people wanted. He causes destruction, he deceives many, he kills many, he's out for his own. And in this text, we'll see that Saul is a picture of the, the enemy, literally a picture of the Antichrist. But in the midst of all this destruction that Saul is going to cause, again, we can't forget that God is going to use all this and ultimately he's going to preserve a remnant of his people. Let's look at it. First Samuel chapter 22, verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah, with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Now obviously, Saul found out about David and his 400 men. Why? Because it's hard to hide 400 men. Okay, we're not talking about just David. Now he's with 400 guys. That's hard to hide. Of course, eventually they would be discovered. But as Saul is trying to persuade his men to continue to follow him, what's he got in his hand once again? A spear. It's like, if you don't follow me, I'm going to hurt you. He's literally trying to inspire the people with fear as he continues to do over and over and over again. But he continues with the persuasion. Let's look back at it. Verse 7. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all the captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? What can David give you? He's got nothing to offer you. He's got nothing. He's got Goliath's sword in a cave that he's staying in at this point. He has nothing he can offer you. 
You want a life of poverty? You want to live a life of being on the run constantly? Then stick with David. But I have everything that you could possibly want. And I offer it to you. What is Saul trying to do? He's trying to persuade his men to be loyal to him. And this is exactly what the enemy tries to do with us. Point number one, the enemy wants your loyalty. The enemy wants your loyalty. And this is very similar to the way the enemy goes about it. He'll try to convince us not to follow the son of David. What is the son of David really have to offer you he wants you to be his slave he wants you to call him master if the son of man has nowhere to lay his head where does that leave you you really want to follow this guy that wants to be your lord i'll let you do whatever you want i'll give you everything the world has to offer the lord's way is he says it's difficult it's narrow few who find it but my way it's broad anybody can come my way and he'll use these things in our lives to try to convince us that his way is the better way he even did this with jesus himself look at it in luke chapter 4 in luke chapter 4 as jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by the enemy the enemy says in luke chapter 4 verse 5 then the devil taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. He even did this with the son of David. Hey, 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 I'll give you all the world has to offer. I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. And that's exactly what the enemy will do with us. The God of this world. And that's what Satan is referred to as by Paul. He'll try to offer us all the world has to offer because he's trying to persuade us to be loyal to him. Because ultimately, he's not trying to give us something. He's trying to take something from us. He's a deceiver. He's a thief and ultimately he wants our souls. If he can persuade us to be loyal to him, we think we might be getting something, but actually we're losing everything. And look at how Jesus responds here in Luke chapter four, verse eight. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Jesus had it right, obviously. But that's got to be the same response for us. The enemy will try to persuade us to get off the path of righteousness that the Lord lays for us so that he can bring destruction into our lives and deception and take things from us. He's out to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he'll persuade us. Just a little bit of loyalty. I'll offer you everything you'd ever desire. See, Saul... Seesaw, I keep saying that, but it's like, I have to, I feel like. Seesaw is, he's trying to persuade the people to follow him. Because he wants something from him. He doesn't have their own interest at heart. He doesn't care about the people. He just wants to use these soldiers to destroy David. Continues on. 1 Samuel, chapter 22, verse 8. All of you have conspired against me. And there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. 
And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servants against me to lie in wait as it is this day. In Saul's madness, he believes that everyone is out to get him. First, remember, it started with David, the guy that was the most loyal, the most faithful to him. He says, David is now my enemy. Now it goes from David being his enemy to all of the land, all of the soldiers are his enemy. Everybody's out to get me. You ever feel like that? It's a lie. (laughs) Really? What makes us think that we're so important that everyone is out to get us? Yes, the Lord uh, loves us and we're important in the God's, in God's eyes, but not everyone on the face of the earth. And sometimes we can be convinced like Saul, the whole world is out to get me. Woe is me. And this is his mentality. He says, none of you feel sorry for me. That's what he says. None of you feel sorry. You're the king of Israel. Of course no one feels sorry for you. But the reason that he's gotten to this place is because he's meditating on the lies of the enemy. And Saul, meditating on these lies, is leading him, him to this place that he's playing the victim. It's point number two. You're not a victim. You're not a victim. Saul, the king of Israel, he's assuming he's the victim. You didn't tell me that Jonathan and David had this covenant. Uh, No one feels sorry for me. You guys are all against me. Now, when I say you're not a victim, that doesn't mean that you've never been a victim. And I want to preface uh, what I'm about to say with that, because I know there's probably everyone in this room has been a victim of something, has experienced something in their life that that they really didn't deserve. So when I say you're not a victim, I'm not saying that you've never vi- been a victim. I'm saying you're not defined by your circumstances, meaning you are not a victim. That's not who you are. You may have been a victim at one point, but that doesn't define you. Your circumstances don't define you. See, When we're going through hard times, it's easy for us to play the victim thing. To want the self-pity, to have self-pity. To assume everybody's out to get us. To think the world completely is against us. You ever fall into this mentality? You ever play the victim? Woe is me. I'm not saying that there's not a a time and a place to share. Hey, I'm really going through this hard time. I think it's important to share when we're going through difficult circumstances. But many people, they stay there. And they stay in their past. And this thing that happened to them so long ago, they wrap their identity completely around this thing. This is who I am because this is what happened to me. That is not true. That is a lie. That's a lie from the enemy. Ultimately, what people are doing when they find themselves in that situation is they're finding their identity based on their circumstances and not based on who Christ says you are. Because you are not your circumstances. You are who Christ says you are. It's interesting. When you look at this story, Saul's not the victim. David's actually the victim, but David isn't playing the victim. He's not playing the victim. Why? Because he knows he's a conqueror in Yahweh. He knows, knows what his identity is, who his identity is, who he is based on his relationship with the Lord. You aren't what happened to you. You are who Christ says you are. And what does Christ say about you? He says many things. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're the beloved. But he also says in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, 
that you're a conqueror. That we're more than conquerors in him who loved us. We're more than, we're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors, meaning I'm not defined by my circumstances, I'm a conqueror over my circumstances. Yes, these horrible things happened to me in the past, but those things don't define me. That's not who I am. I'm who Jesus says that I am. If you fall in that mentality of playing the victim, it's time to stop. Start acting like who God says you are. And I get going through hard times and like, man, I'm really sorrowful. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't stay there. That doesn't define who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. See, Saul, he's meditating on lies. I'm going to keep saying it. He's meditating on lies. And not only that, But his perspective is completely off. See, a lot of what's happening and and, and why he's acting out like this is because he's so self-absorbed. He literally thinks the world revolves around him. And really, that's one of the roots of the uh, issues when you think about victimization. It's when we think that the world revolves around, around us and that the world owes us something. So these people are against me, but they actually owe me something. The reality of it is the world owes us nothing. God doesn't owe us anything. What we deserve, you've heard me say it before, is hell and death. The fact that he gives us anything more than that is grace. The world doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. Now, he'll give us a lot, but he doesn't owe us anything. Saul is wallowing in his self-pity. He's meditating on lies. And he continues in verse 8. All of you have conspired against me. And there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me. This covenant with Jesse, yes, I don't know exactly how he found out. Somebody must have told him, but we saw that covenant confirmed in 1 Samuel chapter 20. But no one will rat Jonathan out. Now, it's almost a contradiction because probably somebody obviously had to because Saul knows about it now. But it's also interesting, none of these guys will speak up. Why? I think they're more loyal to Jonathan than Saul, but also you got to remember all these servants love David. They love David. They don't want to do what Saul is asking them to do. And he says, all my servants, all these servants are stirred up against me. And he blames it on Jonathan, that Jonathan stirred up all these servants against him. But the reality of it is, nobody stirred up any of the servants against Saul. Even looking at the 400 that are following David right now, those 400 aren't following David because Jonathan started this conspiracy. Those 400 are following David because David is a man after God's heart and and he loves God. And because of that, they know they can trust him. They feel comfortable with him. They feel secure with him. They know he's not a man just out to fulfill his own agenda. That's why Servants have rebelled against Saul. Goes on. 1 Samuel chapter 22. Verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Who was set over the servants of Saul and said. I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob. To Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he in." 
inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now, we remember back in the last chapter that Doeg was there, right? He's an Edomite. He's not an Israelite. We don't really know why he's there. Probably some ceremonial cleansing thing that he had to work, uh, had to do to, to work for Saul at the palace. But we see this guy, Doeg, stirs all this stuff up. First of all, he says that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David. Now, we don't see any indication of that in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And Ahimelech's going to deny it later, so I choose to believe there's a good chance that he never did inquire of the Lord for him, or at least not openly. So, it seems that part of this is a lie. And we see Ahim, uh, sorry, Doeg, what he's trying to do is, first of all, cover his own rear end, if you will, um, so that Saul is no longer angry at him, right? Because right now Saul's angry at all his soldiers and servants and he's reaming them all out. So he wants the attention off of himself and on the priest. And it is, seems, it appears that he adds this little lie in here. He's just trying to make a name for himself. We're going to see this guy in a little bit. Very brutal man. He's willing to do whatever it takes to make his name known. To gain position and power and fame. We see no indication of a relationship with the Lord. Especially when we see what he does later on in this chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 22 verse 11. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest. The son of Ahitub. All his father's house. The priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said here now son Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my Lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So we see right off the bat, as Saul approaches Ahimelech, Ahimelech responds in, in utter humility with loyal. Here I am, Lord. Like, what do you want from me? We can see the innocence already in Ahimelech's response. Now, Saul accuses him of conspiring against him. He really has no basis for this. He's using a little bit of information and literally coming up with a conspiracy theory. Well, Doeg said this. But we can't take that and assume that there's this conspiracy against Saul, however, Saul, because of the lies that he's meditating on, he believes that Ahimelech is out to get him as well. So he continues on, verse 14. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes out, goes at your bidding, and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of the Lord for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. 
Now, we've got to remember, David didn't tell Ahimelech the truth. He lied to him. And we have no reason to believe that Ahimelech actually knew what was going on. There's no indication of Scripture. And we couldn't look at the character of Ahimelech and say he's probably lying. He's probably telling the truth here. He probably had no idea that Saul was out to kill David. Remember, he was a little startled, a little afraid, a little thrown off that David went to the temple by himself. But that wasn't enough for him to know everything that was happening between Saul and David. And I love how Ahimelech responds. He says, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He's like, are we talking about the same guy? Like, is this the same guy we're talking about? Like David, the most loyal, faithful servant you got. And this is the guy that you think is out to get you. See, everyone can see what Saul can't. Everyone can see that David is this man after God's heart. And he loves Saul. He loves King Saul, even though King Saul has tried to kill him on several occasions. This is a man that is sincerely both in love with God and Saul, yet... Saul, he doesn't see it. Ahimelech continues his argument. He says, I knew nothing about this. He has nothing to hide. He's telling the truth. And he also says, did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. He said, I didn't do that. I didn't do that part. Yeah, I gave him the bread. I gave gave him Goliath's sword, but I didn't inquire of the Lord for him. So he denies that statement that Doeg made. Ahimelech truly has nothing to hide. It goes on. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 16. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And because they knew when he fled and did not tell me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priest of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. This was obviously unjustified and everybody else knew it. The servants, the other servants are like, dude, we're not doing that. You want us to kill God's people. You want us to kill literally God's leaders, God's shepherds, God's priests. So they choose not to. To participate. And we see uh, Saul's servants are actually more loyal to God than they are to Saul. Now this is one of those examples of, yes, do what authority tells you to do unless that authority asks you to sin. This is a perfect example of that. These guys knew this. Wait a minute. What he's asking me to do is a complete sin. We're murdering innocent people. But Doeg, he doesn't care. Why? Because he doesn't love the Lord. So he slaughters 85 priests. Now, we got to remember... Saul no longer had any spiritual authority in his life. Samuel abandoned him. God rejected him. And now he's going to kill all the priests. Why? Well, obviously, one reason is he believes that they're conspiring against him. But another truth is 
that when these spiritual leaders would speak to Saul, specifically Samuel, he often did not like what they wanted to hear. So I'm just going to get rid of the spiritual authority in my life because I don't like what I'm hearing. And sometimes we can do this. I don't like what certain spiritual people are speaking into my life, so I'm just going to cut them off. Probably won't kill them. But I'm going to cut them off. I'm going to get rid of them. I'm not going to be in a relationship with them anymore. Now you got this leader that has no more spiritual insight. He's completely abandoned by God because he didn't want God. He's abandoned by Samuel. Now he's abandoned by all the spiritual people. The one guy that he's leaning on is a Gentile that doesn't know God. He's putting himself in a horrible situation. We too can put ourselves in this dangerous situation. Sometimes spiritual authority or spiritual leaders will speak things into our life that we don't like. We'll say, no, 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 no. I don't want a relationship with that person anymore because I don't like how they challenge me. I don't like how they, uh, that they try to light the fire under me to, to get me going. I don't like the way that they respond to me. So I'm going to cut them out of the, out of my life. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to surround myself with people that agree with me. I'm going to surround myself with, with people that'll give me the answers that I want to hear. We see a tragic story of this taking place back in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he's the next big king. So as king, the people come up to him. They're like, hey, bro, your dad like whooped us. Like literally he whooped us and he had us working all the time. Like give us a little bit of slack. And Rehoboam's like, well, okay, I'll give you an answer in a couple of days. He goes to the elders and the elders say, hey, 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 this is wisdom. Your dad was hard on them. Your dad accomplished a lot, but he was a little too hard on the people. If you serve your people, they will serve you the rest of their life. So he listens to the elders. Not really. He goes to his friends. He says, hey, guys, what do you think? What do you think I should do? He says, hey, tell them that your father whipped you with whips, but I'm going to whip you with scorpions. Say, I'm going to be even harder. I'm going to accomplish more than my father Solomon. And you know what happened? That was a big part of the division between Israel and Judah. Literally split the country because of this decision that was made. The point is, sometimes we'll seek the answers that we want to hear and not to seek the answers that we need to hear. And it's important for us to keep spiritually minded people around us, even if they don't tell us stuff that we like to hear, even if they challenge us in areas that we don't want to change. It's so important for us to err on the side of wisdom and keep this spiritual influence in our lives. If we're going around just trying to hang with people that are always going to tell us what we want to hear, then ultimately we're going to end up always taking the advice of the enemy in the world and you know what the world and the enemy want to do with you? Destroy you. Chew you up and spit you out. Next thing you know, man, maybe I shouldn't have been hanging out with these guys. Maybe I shouldn't have been listening to these people. See, that's the position that Saul's putting himself in. He's taking all the spirituality out of his life. But they don't just kill the priests. Look who else they kill. Says the men the women, the children, the nursing infants, even the animals. They wiped out the whole city. This is a new low for Saul. Like this is like, come on, he's done some bad things. You know, the sacrifices, the rebellion, uh, not completely listening to God. But now he's killing a bunch of innocent people. He had everything in the city slaughtered. What does this remind you of? 
if you've been going through 1 Samuel with us. Remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God gave Saul a direction to slaughter a whole people group. And, and you can, if you weren't here, you can listen to that message online. But it says in verse 9 of 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul was supposed to kill the Amalekites, every single one of them. And we explained why in that teaching. But look what Saul did. In verse 9, 1 Samuel 15, 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So when God told him to destroy everything, hey, Saul, I want you to destroy all my enemies. And he had his reasons. Saul, he keeps the king as like a trophy. He keeps the lambs. He keeps the fatlings. He keeps everything that he can, he can make off of. Everything that would be good for him so that he could benefit. This was one of his areas of rebellion. He wasn't fully obedient to God. And this is one of the main reasons that God had rejected him. But now... He slaughters a whole people group, and it's God's people. This is literally a direct attack against God. Why would Saul do something like this? Beyond the fact that this distressing, evil demon would come upon him, Saul's bitter at God. He knows that God is raising up David to take the kingdom from him. He knows that God has rejected him. And he has resentment towards God. We often speak of the effects of bitterness and resentment towards man and how it spreads. And it, you have it in one relationship, it'll spread to others. And you'll destroy the relationships that you have if you don't deal with the bitterness and resentment and learn how to forgive and learn how to work through some of these things. But often I think what gets neglected is the bitterness and resentment that people will have towards God. And it typically happens because something in their life terrible happens. Something tragic. For Saul, it was the kingdom getting ready to be taken away from him. So he has this bitterness. He has this resentment towards God. And it's interesting, when you look around the world, you have many self-proclaimed atheists that are out to get God. They're out to maybe not kill God's people, but they're out to bash Christianity. They're out to bash God. The reality of it is, if you just don't believe, you don't care. You don't care. I don't care what he says or she says or he preaches or she says to, to me about this or her philosophical ar argument or his logical or historical argument. You don't care. But when you're this passionate about bashing God, it's because you have some beef with God. You have some issue with God. Usually it's because something tragic happened to you in your life and you want to disprove God. Even though you know he's real, you can't accept the fact that there's this loving omnipotent, omniscient being that allowed these things to happen to you in your life. It's struggling with understanding why God allows suffering. I'm going to tell you a story. It's kind of cool. Um, so I, I had a friend, actually, I've mentioned him a couple times, a friend that I grew up with. Um, his name's Matt. 
And uh, this is the craziest thing that's happened this week. Uh, now, he's like a self-proclaimed atheist, right? This dude is smart. He went to University of Florida, got a philosophy degree, got his law degree at University of uh, South, uh, South Carolina, and then he went to Yale for another philosophy degree. Okay, so he's a very smart guy. Uh, and when uh, a little bit after I got saved, maybe a year or two, you know, I'd post little things on Facebook now and again, scripture, things like that, that I was encouraged by. And every time he would bash me, like he would bash Christianity so bad. And I would get riled up, but I'd always pray through it. And I'd respond in some way like, dude, love you. Here's my number. I'd love to talk to you about some of these things. And, and this went on for, for a while, so much so I actually, uh, he doesn't know this, but, I, but I, I, he might if he ever listens to this. Uh, <laughs> I, I unfollowed him, you know, I, I was still his friend, but I unfollowed him. I couldn't handle all the stuff that he was saying. So two days ago, I think it was two days ago, his sister, who I was also really good friends with, we grew up in the same neighborhood. She calls me and she says, hey man, Matt's going through a really rough time right now and, and he's going to get help. And he's actually going to go to a faith-based program. We've been talking a lot about you. And he says, like, man, that, that, that your story has really inspired him. And, and, and he wants to try this out and, and see what happens. So I've been texting back and forth with him. He's going on Monday. Dude, this guy, like, he is the last person you would ever think to do something like this. You know, didn't believe in God, all these different things. But it really came down to, like, this personal vendetta, this, this anger that he had towards God and 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 I'm still going to talk to him some more before he goes but it's so crazy how these things happen we can build so much resentment so much bitterness towards God because of things that happen in our life now the good news is that God can break through that bitterness he can break through that resentment he can give understanding he can give healing sadly for Saul it doesn't happen that way see Saul had a personal vendetta against God. This wasn't about justice. This wasn't just about a conspiracy thing. He was trying to make a point. You're either going to follow David or you're going to follow me. If you help David, if you talk to David, you have nothing to do with me. You're cut off and literally dead. But what's really interesting about this is that this is also a fulfillment of Scripture. This is point number three. God uses the enemy to fulfill his word. God uses the enemy to fulfill his word. What do I mean? If you remember in the very beginning of our study in 1 Samuel chapter 2, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, remember Eli's house and Hophni and, and Phinehas, his sons who were corrupt, right? God says, hey, you got to deal with them. He didn't deal with them. Uh, Eli didn't deal with his sons. So God uh, spoke judgment against all of Eli's house. These are the priests, Okay. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house. He's not speaking out of his little, literal, literally his arm, uh, though that may have happened in that story. Uh, it's talking about the power and prominence. So that there will not be an old man in your house and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all the good which does, uh, which God does for Israel. And there shall not be a man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. 
See, this was judgment that God spoke against Eli's house. These are the priests. He's going to cut them off because he said he was going to. Now, this is a brutal, brutal act, but ultimately, God is using the enemy to fulfill his word. As tragic as it is, God does this. He uses the enemy to fulfill his word. In this case, he uses Saul. In other cases, in the future, he's going to use the Antichrist. We know the Antichrist will slaughter God's people. He's going to kill Zechariah tells us through the tribulation not just him killing him but ultimately through the tribulation we see two-thirds of the Jews are going to die many of them are going to get slaughtered in fact Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 24 in Matthew chapter 24 as he speaks of the end times he tells us hey when the abomination of desolation happens meaning when the antichrist sits on the throne to be worshiped as god when that event happens you people in jerusalem judea you better start running literally that's what he says look at matthew chapter 24 verse 15 therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by daniel the prophet standing in the holy place whoever reads let him understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Why? Because the Antichrist is coming after him. He's coming after the Jewish people. He is going to slaughter them. Not just the Jews. We know he's also going to slaughter tribulation saints. We see this group of believers in Revelation chapter 20 at the end of the tribulation. They're beheaded. Why? Because they wouldn't take the mark of the beast. And they accepted the Messiah. See, the Lord uses the enemy to fulfill his word. This is his scripture. This is what he says exactly is going to happen. And he'll use a, the enemy as a, as a little pawn to fulfill some of these things. God's been using the enemy to fulfill his word from the beginning. You look at the major world powers. He, he used the Assyrians. Uh, he used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He used Cyrus and the Persians. He used Alexander the Great and the Greeks. He used Julius Caesar in Rome. He used all these world powers that were most of the time, majority of the time, enemies against God's people to ultimately fulfill his word. He had Cyrus, prophecy from Isaiah 44 to 45. Written over a hundred years before Cyrus is even born. Cyrus is named by name. And God says, you know what I'm going to have Cyrus do? I'm going to have him send people back to build the temple. And that was fulfilled 150 years later or some, uh, maybe more than that. The point is, it's all part of God's plan. He uses all of it. How is that practical? Well, When we see the enemy at work in our lives, whether it's spiritual warfare, maybe our circumstances are are just difficult, trials, tribulations, loss, you name it, we got to recognize that God's going to use those things to fulfill his word. At the very least, it's John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will. We can expect it. We can expect circumstances to be difficult. We can expect attacks from the enemy, but the Lord will use these attacks to fulfill his word and ultimately fulfill his will. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 20. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech the son of Ahitub named Abiathar escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David and Saul, 
had killed the Lord's priest, that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. See, regardless of this attack, the Lord... He still preserves a remnant of his people. Abiathar represents this remnant. And this is the fourth and final point. God always preserves a remnant. God always preserves a remnant. And you see this throughout the Bible in its entirety. Noah and the flood. We see it in Revelation at the end. God will rescue a third of the Jews. They will be saved. He always saves a remnant. He'll allow destruction, but he won't allow complete destruction. And this helps us understand why God is letting tragic things happen in the world. Why God lets tragic things happen in the scripture. Sometimes that's the only way to get people's attention sometimes that's the only way so that some can be saved and we see that's the case for the tribulation with the jew referred to as jacob's trouble god uses that time period of destruction of tragedy so that the jews look up at the one whom they pierced and they ultimately get saved god's been doing this remnant thing for a long time if you remember in 1 Kings chapter 19 with Elijah, as he's running from Jezebel, God had preserved a certain amount of people that hadn't bowed a knee to Baal. He preserves his people, even though there might be times where we see God's people almost completely obliterated. It will never happen. When you look at the Jew, okay, and the things that have happened to Jewish people over the years, the, the Assyrian exile, the Babylonian exile, um, them getting wiped out by Rome, the Holocaust, there's no practical reason why they should still be here. They should be killed. They should have been dead a long time ago, but they are here. Because God preserves them. Literally, the Jewish people, they are a miracle. They are a miracle. It's God's work protecting His people practically. They should have been wiped out a long time ago. But because God is faithful to preserve His people, at the very least, a remnant of His people, we still have the Jew. The Jew alone is enough to bring believe in God. <laughs> Literally. Just Jewish people across. The fact that Jewish people are still around is enough to believe in God. He always preserves this remnant. So David, as he has this conversation with this last priest, he says in verse 22, I knew that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. So David picked up when Doag was there, this guy's going to rat me out. He might have known who he was, but it's interesting. He actually talks about Doag in Psalm 52 in this specific situation. Doeg writing him, uh, ratting him out in Psalm 52. Psalm 52, verse 1. Actually, look at the, the context in, in the beginning, that intro. It says, to the chief musician, a contemplation of David, when Doag the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. 
Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. So we see that Doeg was lying about these things, right? With Ahimelech inquiring of the Lord, he told a partial truth, but it wasn't the whole truth. So ultimately, it was a lie. Doeg was a deceiver. He was out for his own, trying to fulfill his own agenda, to be in right standing with Saul. But David takes this heavy, which I think he should in some degree, right? He says, I've caused the death of all the persons of your father's house now think about it doeg said he said uh, david said i knew when i saw doeg that i probably uh, yeah i was in a bad circumstance he was probably going to tell uh so playing that back that should give david even more of a reason to tell to tell the truth or at least bail so ahimelech doesn't get brought into this we see that david is partially responsible why this was all rooted in a lie david coming up with his story that saul sent him out and and he had to go quickly so he didn't have a sword and all these different things he wasn't really by himself he comes up with this elaborate lie and it cost many people their lives now if you look at psalm 34 you don't have to turn there you can just write it down david talks about all of this and uh he he ultimately repents and and he seeks god uh so we do see yes david he's forgiven from this and we can't pin it all on david right david lied it was saul that had all the people killed right you know david plays a part in this but it wasn't david that actually murdered the people this is ultimately on saul and saul as a picture of the antichrist an enemy of god's people was out to destroy anyone associated with David, just as the Antichrist will be out to destroy anyone associated with Yahweh, anyone associated with Jesus Christ. We can expect the enemy to attack. We shouldn't be surprised when he does. But we can also expect God to preserve us. When the enemy does attack us, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get down. It's easy to get out. But we know God is faithful, even when we're faithless, even if we don't walk through spiritual warfare the right way, even if we don't walk through the trial with joy, in the midst of our faithlessness, God is always faithful. And we can be confident that he will preserve us through the trial, that he'll perfect us through the trial, that he will ultimately make all things work together for good, even the most tragic things, even the most devastating things, even losing people and losing things god will use it somehow some way for the greater good often the lord will use the attack of the enemy to purge us of the things that need to be left behind so we can preserve the things that need to remain let's pray Lord, thank you that you use tragedy. And, and it's so hard to, to read a text like this. Um, and just from reading it, it's like, what, God, were you allowing to happen? All these priests and innocent people uh, dying. And 
uh, God, we know your ways and thoughts are far above ours, and, and you use these things to, to fulfill purposes that are beyond our understanding, uh, God. But we also know that, that you're for us, you're not against us, and you love us. We know that there's an enemy out there to steal, kill, and destroy, but we also know that you're out there to, to preserve and to protect and to use uh, even the most tragic things that we uh, walk into, Lord. So we just ask that we would see your faithfulness, especially if there's anyone here that's going through a rough time, uh, going through some type of spiritual warfare, some type of attack from the enemy, meditating on lies, whatever the case may be. God, we pray. Uh, that you would give them the ability to take a step outside their circumstances and see the big picture as you see it, that you are using all these things because you love us so much. You use every bit of it, God, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. And will you stand, please?